and attack family members, attack from neighbors. How would their faith survive? He picked them up, he was driving them to the hospital, and as they were going, the father was leading his family in singing in Burmese, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. They had made a commitment to Jesus, and they weren't turning back. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, The family eventually returned to their village, and they had been discipled in the ways of Jesus, and they knew that Jesus said, you are to bless those who persecute you. You are to love your enemies. And so they made a conscious decision to forgive those who had destroyed their house and injured their family. They publicly forgave those who had done this to them. And it so impacted some of those people who had been involved in this persecution that four of them gave their lives to Jesus. And a few months after this happened, there was a baptism in the village, and four of the people who had been throwing the rocks were now baptized as followers of Jesus. This is discipleship. This is a disciple-making movement. David led a police officer to Christ who led that man to Christ, who led his family to Christ, and together they led their neighbors to Christ by following Jesus, their public witness and example. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. This is discipleship. Um, A little bit about myself. Uh, After college, I moved to the country of Egypt and studied Arabic. I shared a little bit about that in the Sunday school. After Egypt, uh, ended up in Jordan working with Palestinians for seven years and doing discipleship and church planting among Palestinians, and then spent the last 17 years on the Greek island of Cyprus working in an urban, multicultural type of uh, uh, environment. And... um, While we were there, we were able to see six ministry teams established across the island, just ordinary men and women who took ownership of the Great Commission. Uh, Five churches emerged out of that, a number of disciple-making movements, which I'll I'll describe in a moment. And Cyprus is a very multicultural place. Like many European cities, there's people from all over the world who live there. And so very naturally, as people came to Christ and then moved from there back to their home countries or to another country, They became carriers of the kingdom. They took the gospel with them wherever they went. So we saw a network develop from Cyprus to places like Cameroon in West Africa, to Ukraine, to Pakistan, to France, to the United Kingdom, and it continued to spread. Seven months ago, uh, my family and I left Cyprus after 17 years, moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, so I could become the director of international development. And then, God willing, in July, we are going to be opening the the uh, International Office of World Partners in Riga, Latvia, which is a country in northeastern Europe. Um, And we will be living there, but serving our global team around the world from there. Some people have asked, why Latvia? And that's because my wife is from Latvia. Um, And uh, she just became an American two years ago. So she is American, uh, but she was born and raised in the Soviet Union in uh, in Latvia. World Partners' mission, if we can go to the next slide, is to equip men and women to launch disciple-making movements. As I said, a movement is disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It's the the spontaneous expansion of the church. There's a, a life involved in it that people are so transformed by the good news of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that it naturally flows from person to person and family to family, neighborhood to neighborhood, city to city, until it goes throughout the entire world. 
Uh, About 15 years ago, World Partners had a presence in 22 different countries. But as we have focused on this spontaneous expansion of the church, the reproduction of the life of Jesus, disciples who make disciples, we have now gone from a presence in 22 countries to today a presence in 127 countries. Um, In many of those countries, we don't have missionaries even. But the gospel is just naturally spreading from place to place. That's a part of you guys as well. You are the missionary church. This is the work of our family of missionary churches that God is is doing through us. He's not doing it only through us. He's doing it through the entire body of Christ around the world. But thank God we get to be a part of it and get to be included in what God is doing. I appreciated hearing uh, Acts 1-8 this morning. Uh, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, and as you shared with us, we begin in, Jude- in Jerusalem. This is your Jerusalem right here. But what Acts 1.8 tells us is that what God does in Jerusalem can impact the ends of the world, ends of the earth. So what God does here through this church, through you people, can have a global impact as the Holy Spirit works through you. So because of that, that's one of the reasons I'm excited to be here this morning. Because there's incredible potential for the glory of God to shine through you. For the kingdom of God to be extended through you as the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you surrender to Him and live in obedience to everything Christ commanded. As you do that, God can use you to impact your Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. In order to understand how this happens, uh, let's look at Jerusalem. Let's see what God did in Jerusalem. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to just read a few verses, verses 19 to 23. Uh, This takes place in Jerusalem. Immediately after Jesus has been crucified... Um, he had spent three years with his disciples. He had gone with them into Jerusalem. He is arrested. Uh, there's a mock trial, and he is uh, uh, condemned to be executed, and he is crucified on the cross. And uh, he's been buried in a tomb. The disciples are gathered together in a room, scared. What's going to happen to them next? And that's where we pick up the story. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we can go to the next slide. Um, You can follow along with the words up there as we read. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. It says, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Amen. Three things that uh, we see Jesus giving his disciples in this passage. And by extension, I think he gives us these three things as well. And uh, that's what we want to look at this morning. The first thing that Jesus gave his disciples was his peace. 
Uh, you can go to the next, and again, one more slide. Jesus gave his disciples peace. Think about this for a moment. The situation that the disciples found themselves in. Judas had just betrayed Jesus. Peter had denied him three times. All of the disciples had run away and fled. Jesus, the one that they thought was the Messiah, the one who was going to restore Israel uh, and restore its glory and its independence again, restore the glory of the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus, who they thought was going to be the one to succeed where David had, had not been able to succeed eternally, Jesus would come and, and do that. All of their hopes placed on this man, Jesus, and he was dead. He was gone. They had failed. They had run. Jesus was dead. Now what? They were scared. Everything was falling apart. And this story begins with 11 scared... Actually, 10, because Thomas wasn't there yet. And Judas was dead. 10 scared men in a room with the door locked. They were in a situation where it was difficult for them to believe. All the stuff that they had been taught by Jesus, all the the miracles that they had seen, everything He had told them about the future, they must have been doubting it. What are we supposed to do now? Was it true all that stuff He said about the kingdom of God? Was it real? Or were we deluded? Were we deceived? What next? I think the disciples were finding it very difficult to believe at that moment. We live in a particular season, a particular time in human history, in a a place here in Western culture where I think it's also difficult to believe. Many people struggle to believe the claims of Christianity and the claims of Christ. In fact, according to a recent survey, 25% of the people who live in our world, in the Western world today, Europe and the United States, 25% don't identify with any particular religion. They're nothing. Um, it's difficult for them to believe in God. They don't need to believe in God. You know, 500 years ago, belief in God was a given. Everybody seemed to believe in God 500 years ago. But it's no longer a given. It's difficult to have faith today. There's a lot of challenges to our faith. We live in a time where our worldview is very materialistic, where everything is defined by science and there's no room for the supernatural, no room for the spiritual. And so when you begin to talk about spiritual realities, people don't know how to comprehend that. How do you prove that? I was having a conversation with somebody a few weeks ago, young person, and, and he said, the only reason people had religion before was because they didn't have explanations for things. Well, now we have science to explain those things. But I said, but there's a lot of stuff science can't explain. There's a lot of stuff science can't prove. The Bible says God is spirit. How do you prove spirit? Bible can't, or the, the science can't prove that. But because we live in this materialistic world where spiritual knowledge is not considered real knowledge anymore, that whole realm is is left off the table. It's a difficult time for people to believe. In addition to that, people don't need church the way they once needed church. You can get your social needs met someplace else. 
You can get your, an your questions answered someplace else. Just Google it. <laughs> it used to be that going to church was good for your family, good for your business, good for your social life. Well, now you can get all that met somewhere else. So I thank you for coming here today because I know there's about a hundred other things you could be doing. <laughs> but you chose to be here, so thank you. But many people, they don't need it anymore. That's the world we live in. It's hard to believe. But you know what I've noticed in talking with secular people and working in Europe among many secular people, they've given up faith in God because they believe that that will make them feel more at peace. But then they discover they still doubt. They doubted whether God was real, but once they give up belief in God, they doubt that there is no God. And they continue to be plagued with that. We live in an age of anxiety, don't we? People are afraid. People are scared. They don't know what to believe. They don't know what to do. They don't know what the future holds. They're afraid. Just like the disciples, Jesus supernaturally comes into that situation and says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Fear is poison to the mission of the church. The disciples would never be able to take the gospel to all nations as long as the door was locked and they were stuck in there in fear. That fear had to be overcome. Fear is poison to discipleship. Fear is poison to the mission of the church. And yet we live in this atmosphere of fear today, don't we? We need to hear the voice of Jesus again speaking to us and saying, peace be with you. Jesus is with us. He's alive. He's not dead. And as He came and appeared to His disciples, He broke that fear and the fear turned to joy. Joy is where we minister from, not fear. And when we, when we are filled with the joy that comes from the presence of the living Christ, that's when we can begin to take the Gospel. So the first thing that the disciples needed to receive was peace. There's a Russian Orthodox saint called St. Seraphim of Serov. And he has this uh, statement that he made about 100 years ago, 150 years ago. He said, Acquire inner peace and thousands around you will find their salvation. When we experience the peace of Christ, it will become contagious because we live in a world of fear. Let the peace of Christ transform our hearts, release us, and we will see the spontaneous expansion of the church. <laughs> but if we are plagued by the fear that surrounds us, Fear of a bad economy, fear over health issues, fear of Muslims, fear of immigration, fear of whatever it might be. If we allow that fear to consume us, we're going to be stuck in that locked room. Unable to function and do what God has called us to do. So the first gift that Jesus gives us is his peace. The second gift he gave his disciples was his power. If we can go to the next slide. It says he, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The word breathed in the original Greek is an interesting one there. It actually means to inflate. The disciples were like a deflated balloon. And Jesus comes in and goes, and poop. <laughs> They're inflated with the Holy Spirit. 
Um, There is a clear link throughout Scripture between the Holy Spirit and mission. It was the Holy Spirit that led the church beyond the cultural and religious boundaries of Judaism to reach the Gentiles, the Greeks, and the Romans. Uh, If you read the stories of persecution at the stoning of Stephen, um, and then the, uh, the, uh, Philip with the Ethiopian in Acts 8. All of this is moved forward by the Holy Spirit. Saul's conversion in Acts 9. Peter and the centurion in Acts 10. Uh, crossing the boundaries from Jew to Gentile throughout the rest of the book of Acts. None of this was a strategy of the apostles. We don't see the apostles sitting down, coming up with a church growth strategy, putting some charts up and some diagrams and saying, okay, if we start with 10, we can go to 100. If we start with 100, we can go to 1,000. If we do this, 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 and this. There's nothing like that. It's the Holy Spirit that drove them out of Jerusalem and from place to place. The Holy Spirit forced them almost to become missionaries. One person said, Describing the Holy Spirit, he said, He is the missionary spirit of the missionary Father and the missionary Son, breathing life and power into God's missionary church. It's the Holy Spirit that has made us the missionary church. And I don't mean that in the denominational sense. I mean that in the the sense of who we are to be as the body of Christ. Michael Green wrote in a book on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit did not come to make us comfortable, He came to make us missionaries. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Throughout history, the the center of Christianity has shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch to Istanbul to Rome to London, Chicago. Now you will find it everywhere. Calcutta, Hong Kong, uh, Lagos, Mexico City. God is moving everywhere, but that's a movement of this missionary spirit, the Holy Spirit. God has given us His Spirit, but it's a spirit to empower us to accomplish His mission. The third gift that Jesus gave after giving them peace, after giving them his spirit, is he gave them a mission. Um, I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine named Shahid. This is Shahid up there. Uh, it, it maybe looks like we are grabbing him and throwing him into the Mediterranean Sea. We're actually baptizing him. He's not trying to escape there. Um, but uh, this was Shahid's baptism. Uh, Shahid is from Pakistan. He came to Cyprus as a student, came to Christ. Um, and I began to disciple him. Every week we would get together in my home. We'd have dinner together. We'd talk and we'd pray. And uh, we would open the Bible together. We were doing something very simple, just looking at the Gospels, the life of Jesus, trying to discover who is Jesus, how did Jesus love and serve other people, how did Jesus make disciples, and then how can we put that into practice ourselves? How are we going to imitate Jesus in our own lives? And so we were doing this week after week after week. Um, Shahid, as he was learning about Jesus and how Jesus made disciples, began doing the things that he was learning with his friends. If we can go to the next slide. Uh, Some of his friends there began to come to Christ as well. And he began to disciple them. I wasn't discipling them. I don't even know all these guys' names. But, But Shahid began to teach them who Jesus was and the ways of Jesus simply by going through the Gospels, looking at the stories of who Jesus is. 
and then talking and praying about it together. The other thing that Shahid was doing is he was getting on, on the phone every week with his sister back in Pakistan, and the things that we were studying together, he began sharing them with her as well. He'd say, he'd say to her, you know what we were studying this week, Mark chapter 4, John chapter 6, or whatever, and, and this is what we were discovering about Jesus. Well, she began sharing those things. He challenged her to share those things with her friends as well. So back in Pakistan, Shahid's sister began to talk to her friends about Jesus as well. If we can go to the next slide. That's uh, a picture of her with some of her friends back in Pakistan uh, studying the Bible together. Eventually, they began to do this with others as well. Today, there are over 400 women in active discipleship in Pakistan through Shahid's sister. There are about 40 Pakistanis, Indians, and Bangladeshis in Cyprus who are studying with Shahid. Through that one man, a disciple-making movement has started. And you know what Shahid does for a living? He delivers pizza for Pizza Hut. You know, sometimes we think it's the pastor's job, it's the missionary's job to do all of this. A Pizza Hut delivery person can start a disciple-making movement. If he can do it, do you think God can use us? What do we have to do? Be faithful. As we were talking about in Sunday school, pray, love your neighbors, love your enemies, bless people. That's all you have to do. Pray for them and bless them and watch the door open. The Lord will open those doors for you to begin to share more from his word. Jesus gave his disciples a mission, and that mission was to make more disciples. If we can go to the next slide, this is a definition of discipleship that I like to use. Discipleship is learning from Jesus, the example of Jesus, the words of Jesus, how to love God and love our neighbors. It's learning to practice faith, hope, and love. See, sometimes we think discipleship is about Bible studies, and it is that. We need to study God's Word. That's the information we have about Jesus. It comes from God's Word. So we need to study the Bible. We need to study theology. We need to know what this book teaches and how to put it into practice. But discipleship is much more than learning the Bible. It's learning how to love. It's learning how to have faith and how to have hope. But as we discussed in Sunday school, how do you teach those things? It's easy to teach the Bible, but how do you teach someone to love? You do that through relationships. You do that uh, by spending time with your neighbors, modeling it for them, and loving them. And you do it as be, by being a loving family yourself, an open family that welcomes people as they are. Bringing people into a relationship with Christ. But Jesus gives us some more information here in John 20 uh, about this mission. Uh, he says in verses 21 and 23, he says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then verse 23, If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's a really hard verse to understand. That has plagued commentators for centuries. What does that mean? If you forgive people's sins, they will be forgiven. And if you don't forgive their sins, they will not be forgiven. That's part of our mission? What, what does that mean? How does, how does that work? Um, well, I think to understand verse 23, we need to go back to verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
Uh, imagine this scene in your mind again. The disciples are in the upper room, and their door is locked, and they're scared, and suddenly Jesus supernaturally appears there in their midst and uh, says, peace be with you. Uh, and then he shows them his hands and his side. Why did he do that? So they could see what? The scars. The crucifixion. It's really Jesus. He really was crucified, and he's really alive standing there in front of them right now. But he shows them his hands and his side, the scars, and he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Sometimes we talk about being the hands and the feet of Jesus. Do you really want to be the hands and feet of Jesus? <laughs> Nail-pierced hands and feet? Jesus' mission in the world was to carry the sin of the world. Now, we can't carry the sin of the world. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God, the only Lamb of God who can do that. But like Jesus, we do bear the cost of forgiveness sometimes, just like that man in Myanmar who refuses to get revenge and instead chooses forgiveness. Forgiveness costs. It's free to us when we receive forgiveness, but it always costs the one who gives it. It cost God to forgive us. And we, as the hands and feet of Jesus, as the Father has sent him, he sends us, we also bear a cost in going out into the world with this message of forgiveness. Let me give you an illustration, and then we'll bring this to a close, of, of what this looks like. Do you remember Palm Sunday, 2017, uh, in Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt, there was a terrorist attack against an Egyptian church, a Coptic Orthodox church. Uh, it was Palm Sunday, the worshipers were coming in to celebrate Palm Sunday, and a man came in and detonated, a suicide bomber detonated a bomb, killed himself and a number of other people in the Palm Sunday service in this church in, in uh, Egypt. There's a, an Egyptian television presenter, a newscaster, um, who was talking about this. They were, of course, reporting this terrorist attack on the Egyptian news. Uh, this man's name is Amar Adib. He's a Muslim, a famous news broadcaster in Egypt. Uh, a reporter had been interviewing some of the people who were uh, in the church at the time that the attack happened. And so they did this interview of the people, and then it went back to Amr Adib in the television station. After hearing the interviews, he could not speak. For 12 seconds, he could not speak. Now, 12 seconds on television, 12 seconds of silence is very awkward. You know, the camera's on the person, on the newscaster, and he's unable to speak. So let me read. This was reported in Christianity Today. It says, 12 seconds of silence is an awkward eternity on television. Amr Adib, perhaps the most prominent talk show host in Egypt, leaned forward as he searched for a response. The Christians of Egypt are made of steel, he finally said. Moments earlier, Adib was watching a colleague in a simple home in Alexandria speaking with the widow of Nassim Fahim, who was the guard at St. Mark's Cathedral in the Mediterranean city. On Palm Sunday, the guard had redirected a suicide bomber through the perimeter metal detector, 
and the terrorists detonated there. Likely the first to die in the blast, Fahim saved the lives of dozens inside the church. I'm not angry at the one who did this, said his wife, children by her side. I'm telling him, may God forgive you. And we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. And stunned, Amr Adib stammered about the Christians bearing atrocities over hundreds of years, but he couldn't escape the central scandal. How great is this forgiveness you Christians have? His voice was cracking. If it was my father, I would never be able to forgive. But this is your faith. This is your religion. And millions of people marveled with him across the airwaves of Egypt. A Muslim nation hearing from a widow the message of forgiveness. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The Great Commission to go and make disciples begins with the good news of God's forgiveness. This is great news, and we get to go into the world and just tell people, you're forgiven. It's okay. God forgives you. You can start over. And we'll be with you to help you. This is fun. And we get to do it. Sometimes we think, oh man, I'm, an e- I'm not an evangelist. I'm, and, and I'm not a missionary. And we feel guilty. It's too hard. I can't do it. You get to tell people good news. <laughs> Who wants to keep that silent? This is all supernatural. It's the the resurrected Christ, the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of God. That's our mission. What happens in Jerusalem can impact the ends of the earth. Today, here, God gives you his peace. He breathes on you his Holy Spirit. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I am. I'm sending you. Go and tell them this good news of forgiveness. And if we can go to the the last slide there. This morning, one before that, (laughs) receive his peace if you need his peace. Maybe your heart is in turmoil. Receive that peace. Receive his power, his Holy Spirit. And receive the mission, the responsibility to bear this good news to the world. Don't refuse any of these good gifts from God. And as you go from here to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded, the presence of the living Christ goes with you. You can't do it, but He can. And He's chosen to do it through you. May God bless you as you serve Him. Thank you.